If you would, open your Bible to the book of Revelation, John's Revelation, as it is often called, um, and the first chapter, of course. Um, by the way, there's an unwritten rule that when you get back from a sabbatical that you get extra time in the sermon. <laughs> I, it's just there. Especially if you start a little later at preaching time, right? I mean, so, just a fair warning. <clears throat> we are beginning a new series in the book of Revelation. Record. Uh, and our series title is Worship and Witness in a Winner-Takes-All World. And so, if you would join me in reading Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, which must soon take place, or what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. Literally, the next two words are, yes, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we... May, may we approach your word soberly and with reverence. And may we do the due diligence necessary to hear it. And may your spirit give us the grace that, this, that th- these verses speak to us. O Holy Spirit, bring from the throne grace and peace to us, even as we read aloud these words and hear them, and Lord, keep them in our hearts. Amen and amen. Regarding the book of Revelation and its interpretation, G.K. Chesterton once quipped, Though John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. Of course, he had no problem with the book itself. It was the commentators that he was concerned with. He explains that if one reads it according to what it is, it will remain sane. But if one tries to make, it every, to, to make everything in it finite and contained, it becomes a hideous monster. He compared it to the difference between asking to get one's head into the heavens, which can be wonderful, and seeking to get the heavens into one's head, which can cause it to split. 
If you think it is unwise to do a study in Revelation, you're in good company. Luther, early on, said it was neither apostolic nor prophetic, referring to the book. I can say, I I can in no way detect that the Holy Spirit produced it. Again, they are supposed to be blessed to keep what, what is written in this book, and yet no one knows what that is, to say nothing of keeping it. Christ is neither taught nor known in it. Wow. I doubt many of, any of us would say that. We, we dare not. But do we in practice believe it? I mean, we tend to avoid it if we're in a Bible reading plan, of course, right? We'll read it when we get there and charge our way through it. Or on the other hand, we make it the most important book in all of the Bible. And we make it say all sorts of fantastical things. On a secular level, George Bernard Shaw called Revelation the, quote, curious record of the visions of a drug addict, which was absurdly admitted into the canon under the title of Revelation. (laughs) There are two common responses to discussion of this book. The first is, I'm a pan-millennialist. You know, it'll all pan out in the end. And and that's humorous, I, I, I will agree. Uh, but it can, doesn't always, but it can represent uh, an I'm not really interested in that book attitude. Um, in effect, we've removed Revelation from Scripture. I mean, could we say the same about Romans or Matthew or some other book of the Bible? Like, ah, just whatever, I don't really care what it says. It'll all work out. We wouldn't. But then there's another response. <clears throat> that's, that's the one where uh, people say, well, they, they get super excited, and they say, that's my favorite book of the Bible. I, I worry more about that response for some reason. <laughs> Maybe it's my experience. I don't know. <clears throat> um, so the idea of doing a series on Revelation brings questions and comments out of the woodwork. I've experienced many of them already. Um, <clears throat> you think we're in the last days. You know, I realize that we're all in a bigger sense biblically in the last days. But do you think Jesus is coming back in our generation? I've been asked that at least three times already since I mentioned that I'm doing it. And I guarantee you I'll be asked it many more times. Are we going to talk about the Antichrist or the rapture? Ironically, neither the word Antichrist nor rapture occur in the book, yet many assume that's what it is about. So those topics will not consume our conversation. And, by the way, you will not know when Jesus is coming back when we're finished. I can assure you. We'll not be talking about one world government, credit cards, RFID chips, or any number of other things that often come up when discussing John's revelation. I was present, personally, at, I think, 16 years old when Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth debuted in theaters in 1978, and I was soaking it all in. Now, for those of you who do not know what late great planet Earth was, I'll help you. Think left behind, but not a fictional narrative, more like a newsreel current events with Orson Welles narrating it. How could you not believe that? One left the theater convinced that Jesus was coming back within a few years, ten at most. Why go to college? Why bother getting an education? 
So rather than preparing for ministry, I planted a church at almost 19 years old in 1981. So in about 1984, I was teaching in our midweek service at the church through a series on the end times, using basically Hal Lindsey's same theology. A few weeks into that, second time through this 12-week series, I'm in about week three, and I, I got up that Tuesday night and said, hey, we're going to stop the series because I don't believe anything I was telling you. Now, I don't know what I believe about it all right now, but I can assure you it's not that. So when I figure it out, I'll let you know. We'll go on to teaching something else. <clears throat> you see, a, a friend of mine had come to visit and was preaching at the church. He was one of my former pastors. And, and while he was there, he just asked me a couple of questions. And all it took was a couple of questions to completely undo my theology of the end times. You might wonder what those were, and we might get to that before we're done with this series. Keep tuning in. I was around when Edgar Wisenant, if that's how he said his name, Wisenant, I think, a former NASA engineer and Bible student, published 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Fortunately, by then, I didn't believe it was possible that he knew, but <clears throat> nonetheless, he did, and plenty of people listened. And the next year, he published On Borrowed Time, which was jokingly referred to as 89 reasons why Jesus will return in 89, adding one more reason, of course, because he didn't come in 88. Wisenant declared when he first released his book, only if the Bible is in error am I wrong. And I say that to every preacher in town, and if there were a king in this country and I could gamble with my life, I would stake my life on it. Wow. Sadly, as is usually the case, the, these kinds of absurdities are taken seriously in some parts of the evangelical church. People start wondering, is it possibly true? Did he get some sort of secret that Jesus himself didn't know? <laughs> Evidently. Trinity Broadcasting Network, TBN, Interrupted programming leading up to the predicted day, providing special instructions on preparing for the rapture. Uh, I'm serious. <laughs> it does not get more absurd than this. <clears throat> but this is reality. <clears throat> All it needs is a new face, though. Harold Camping, through his family radio station, predicted that Judgment Day would occur on or about September 6, 1994. And when it failed to occur, he revised the date to September 29th and then to October 2nd. Wait 11 years, and in 2005, Camping predicted the second coming of Christ to May, uh, on May 21st, 2011, whereupon the saved would be taken up to heaven in the rapture and, quote, there would be, follow five months of fire, brimstone, and plagues on earth with millions of people dying each day, culminating in October with the final destruction of the world, end quote. These kinds of things and the fact that they even get some followers from the faith community make the church a laughingstock to an unbelieving world. One might think, so what? That isn't real Christianity. But, but listen, 
the world listens to it and just lumps it in with all the other faith claims of Christianity and says, listen, there's no reason to believe any of them, and they no longer even consider the claims of Christianity. It matters. So what is this book about? What is it about? Well, Michael Gorman answers this way, and I think he's right. At least if you zoom in. Revelation is not about the Antichrist, but about the living Christ. It is not about a rapture out of this world, but about faithful discipleship in this world. That is, like every other New Testament book, Revelation is about Jesus Christ. A revelation of Jesus Christ and about following him in obedience and love. If anyone asks, why read the Apocalypse? That's the Greek name for the book. The unhesitating answer must be to know Christ better. A couple of other authors suggest this, and I think they're right. It's more of a zoom-out sort of approach. Apocalyptic literature, that's what Revelation is, has always been an effort to respond to very basic human questions that transcend, listen, that transcend time and space. How do we live in a world rife with evil? Does God care about our predicament? Will justice finally be found on earth? What happens when we die? These and other questions live in the heart of humanity. The book of Revelation offers powerful, poetic answers to them. I think they nailed it as well. But finally, I will answer this question. Why do a series in the book of Revelation? Well, for me, that answer is very practical. Revelation was written to churches that were predominantly unhealthy. We'll explain that as we get into the seven so-called letters. It's predominantly unhealthy in their worship and witness. And that would be my assessment of the church today. Predominantly unhealthy in its worship and witness. So it's very relevant for us. Not relevant because of what's happening in the world today, but because of the condition in the church today. So we'll begin. My first heading is a beatitude. It's three headings today. A beatitude, a benediction, and um, I don't know, I forget the third one. What is it? Exuberant worship. Yeah. It's good. I think I'd make these things memorable. Do you know how long I spent working on a third B term? I mean, that was an hour. Just figure, there's, there's no B for worship. I mean, there's none. You find one, you let me know, I'll give you a dollar. But, you know. <clears throat> a beatitude. The revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what, what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angels to his servant John who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the uh, testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. The book begins pronouncing a blessing, a beatitude, if you will, upon those who read 
That was the person in the congregation who would take this book once he received and read it aloud to the congregation. They didn't have books. They weren't passing out pamphlets and no printing press. And the person who hears, that's the congregation, and takes to heart what is written in it. Beatitudes, just like those in Matthew's Gospel, intend to motivate behavior. There are plenty of Beatitudes also in the Old Testament. Blessed are those whose sins have been forgiven. Blessed is the one who does not. And then you got three things he doesn't do. But he meditates in the law day and night. What is that supposed to do? Motivate us to meditate in God's Word. They Blessed are the ones who have care for the poor. What, what is supposed to motivate us to care for the poor? Uh, and so we want the blessing, so it's a, it motivates behavior. The, the Shema comes to mind in Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4. Shema, or hear, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. The one who hears and keeps them who treasures them in their heart for the purpose of obeying them. We must hear and keep these wor- the words of this book in our hearts. And yet, this book that begins with a blessing for the one who listens and keeps it, is one of the most neglected books of Scripture. And for those who don't neglect it, there's very little they ever say that we're supposed to keep in our discipleship. It's about all sorts of other things, but rarely about that. And why is that? Well, I think the problem is, is one of understanding. It's hard to understand the book, if we're honest, right? You read it, mm-hmm. not sure. We live in a day of soundbite theology. If it can't be captured in a soundbite, we aren't interested. Now, ironically, we are a people who profess to believe in God's Word given to us in 66 books, approximately 1,400 pages in my English Bible, um, over about 1,500 years. Listen, this is no soundbite. It is just not a soundbite. You can't capture this in a phrase or in three uh, well-alliterated phrases or anything like that. This thing is complex. It takes effort. But there's this one soundbite that people even if they wouldn't say it, they, they, we kind of inherently take in, and it's the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Although, so we have to get past what did it mean before we, that settles it, or I believe it. What, what do we believe? If it were as simple as the Bible says it, how do we end up with this vast proliferation of denominations and non-denominations we have today? I think we're headed to the point in church history Um, at least if you follow the trajectory, that will land in a place where everyone is their own denomination or non-denomination, as the case may be. We can't agree with anyone, so we just have our own little church. A question we often fail to ask in determining meaning is one of genre. If you're not familiar with that word, it's just another word for style, style of music, genre of music, jazz, rock and roll. What, What is your style of music? Blues, yeah, it's good. <clears throat> but the same applies to writing. There are different genre. Not only did God inspire the original words of the book of Revelation, for instance, or Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, any book in the Bible, 
but he also inspired the style of writing. The name of the book translated Revelation is Apocalypsis. So the genre is really easy to identify. Apocalyptic. That is a genre of life. This is apocalyptic. Michael Gorman is correct to say Revelation is simultaneously an apocalypse, a prophecy, and a letter. And then quoting Richard Bauckham, he adds, an apocalyptic prophecy in the form of a circular letter. It's also a liturgical text designed and instructive for worship, and we'll illustrate that today toward the end of the sermon. Eugene Peterson says that Revelation reveals, listen, Revelation reveals that the gospel of Jesus Christ is more political than anyone imagines, but in a way that no one guesses. I think that probably nails it on the head. So we will explore these ideas in our study as we go through. Now, by the way, my intention is merely to cover, and again, intentions, that's an intention. We'll see what we do going forward, but to stop after about chapter 11. We're going to cover the seven letters and at least two or three chapters beyond that. But while going through them, make connections to the rest of the book. Now, after uh, Advent, if we determine it's fruitful to continue, we will do so. Now, in order to understand genre, let me, let me use this. I, I have always enjoyed, as always, certainly as my, in my adult life, I've enjoyed studying the history of World War II and all that surrounds it, particularly the Third Reich and all that surrounds that. Because I think it's a significant point in human history. I've read not all of, but large portions of the rise and fall of the Third Reich. I've read biography of, of Stalin, which there's an interrelationship inter- between these things. Uh, I've read a lot of history about it. I've read biographies, multiple biographies of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, as you probably know, was, was killed uh, by the, the, you know, the Third Reich uh, because of uh, his involvement in uh, a plot to overthrow Hitler. Um, and, and as a theologian, he's really become my favorite modern theologian by, by uh, every stretch of the imagination. So I, I've done that. But more recently, in the last year or so, I've come to find a new genre that I love, and that's historical fiction that surrounds that period. And basically, whether it's, whether it's Germany, France, Britain, Italy, Israel, Russia, it's in that same time period. I just, I love it. I love it, and it affects me in an entirely different way than reading history. I mean, reading history, I read history because, well, I want to. I, I know that I'll get good information about it, and I, I do find it interesting, but I read it when I have insomnia, and it helps me go to sleep. Okay? Reading historical fiction, if I read that at night, it keeps me up because I want to keep going. And the thing about it that history doesn't do for me is it makes me feel what it would have been like to live there, to have been there, to, to experience the horrors and the joys that may have been experienced. Genres change things completely. Now, the same is true in Scripture. We have to pay attention to what it is we are reading, and that goes very much so for the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That translate, the NIV translates it the revelation from Jesus Christ. 
They are suggesting, and I think rightly so, that the genitive Jesus Christ, always glossed as of Jesus Christ, is expressing where it came from. The revelation that came from Jesus Christ. And in context, that's primarily what seems to be communicated there. The other option is the revelation about Jesus Christ. Well, it is that too. Fortunately, the original audience didn't have to pick because both ideas were just there. They, they didn't pick, but what's the English translation? They weren't thinking about that. But from Jesus Christ, I think, is the main point. To show his slaves. Now, we much prefer being called servants rather than slaves, at least I do. However, since the nature of the book of Revelation is to show that behind the scenes what appears to be real is often the opposite of the truth, I think that slaves better captures the contrast with the reality that we reign with Christ even though we experience life as slaves. We are kings, as it were, while we are slaves. Servants doesn't have as strong of a contrast. In fact, we live as slaves, which is how we reign with Christ. <clears throat> Speaking of historical fiction novels, um, in, in Aisha Kulin's uh, Last Train to Istanbul, a, it's, a, it's, it's a stirring account of a Turkish lady who married a Jewish man moving away from family in Turkey to France prior to Nazi occupation. Um, of course, the Nazis did invade and occupy France, and this led to the inevitability throughout the story of either their escape or their capture and travel plans to a concentration camp. When all hope seemed lost of getting back to Turkey, some Turkish diplomats, diplomats had a plan. There was one last train leaving Paris and heading to Istanbul. There was only one problem. It was going through Berlin. Now, which Jews would want to get on a train going through Berlin to get anywhere at that time in human history? Well, they gather a group of, of Turkish Jews, maybe about a dozen or so in all, and put them on this train, give them papers, have them dress appropriately, etc., but, of course, they're going to be scrutinized at every stop along the way and even during the ride. As they enter Germany, <clears throat> she writes, quote, The train was passing through pretty green valleys, past the gardens of suburban houses, with children playing and dogs jumping around. Women were hanging out their wash and men were mowing their lawns. They traveled through towns and cities too where one could see the domes of churches in the distance. Listen. Then she writes this. Looking at all this, one had the impression that all was well with the world. If an alien visiting the earth for the first time were on this train, he'd have the same impression. Europe's hell wasn't visible from the train's windows. Europe's hell wasn't visible from the train's windows. The world's hell is rarely visible from the train's windows. Reality is not visible if we observe things as passer-throughs. Reality is often hidden beneath the surface. Now, it works in reverse, too. Heaven's glory is not visible from the train's windows either. 
When believers embrace the role of a slave, the train ride keeps telling us that we are defeated. We are slaves. But the hidden reality is quite the opposite. We are conquerors in Christ. And for those who appear by the world's standards to be conquerors and winners, they are, in fact, slaves and defeated. Christ Jesus, who came to be the slave of all, gave this revelation to his slave John, who now gives it to us if we are slaves of Christ Jesus. Blessed is the slave who reads this slave discourse and puts it into practice. Secondly, a benediction. Read with me verse 4. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you. From him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits from before his throne. And from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. And the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now the evidence favors that this is John the Apostle. He was the only John who would have been well known enough in Asia at the end of the first century. To require no other description than John. Any other John would have had to explain who he was. To the seven churches in the province of Asia. It's not coincidental that there are seven. It's not as if John said, well, there's only seven churches. I'll write it to each of them. No, there are more than seven churches. He chose seven for a purpose. It's intentional because the number seven is symbolic of completeness, like the seven days of creation, for instance. These were seven literal churches, not only the only churches in Asia, but representative of the whole. So, called seven letters, as we'll talk about in a couple of, of sermons, were not individual cover letters, but messages of prophecy for each church, but also for all the churches. So, all the churches received all the so-called letters of prophecy. We'll explain why that's important later. Grace and peace to you. <clears throat> this is an opening benediction or blessing pronounced on the reader. We have a benediction at the end of the service. We send people out with God's blessing. But John, and Paul did this in his letters, he introduced with grace and peace to you. And then he ended with a benediction as well. So here we have that. The book, Revelation, ends with one. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. These benedictions demonstrate that the whole is considered to be used as worship or liturgy. What it contains is sacred and is to be bookended by benediction for grace to those who enter in. From whom is this blessing? Who gives it? Well, the Trinity gives the blessing. First, we have a description of the Father from the one who is. Ha'on, the one who is. And the one who was and is to come. Now, this captures the essence of Yahweh's description in the Old Testament. In Exodus 3, 14, when, when Moses asked, Who shall I say sent me? The Lord answers, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am, Ha'on, has sent me to you. So when he says Ha'on, the one who is, he's saying the I am. The Ha'on, the, the one who is the ever-present God. And of course he was. God was present and active in all your history. He is present and active now. And oh, by the way, He is to come. In Isaiah 41, 4, we read, I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am He. The Greek reads something like this. 
in the Greek Old Testament. I, God, am the first, and for all that is coming, I am. That is what John is communicating here. It's often missed because of our focus on the coming of the Lord, but that's what he's communicating here is, in, in all that is coming, I am. I am active in all that is coming. The one to come sounds like a singular future event, but the focus is more on his being, his existence, in all that is coming. Putting these three things together, it speaks of God's eternality and the fact that God is active now and always will be. He is not static. The message is from the Father, but it is also from the Holy Spirit, from the seven spirits before His throne. And again, the number seven is not random, and it's not as if the Holy Spirit is divided into seven parts. That's not the point. Seven spirits imply one for each church. In other words, the fullness of the Holy Spirit is sufficient for the fullness of the church in Asia and, of course, beyond for us today. They are before the throne. It is through their ministry that the churches will receive grace and peace from the throne, the the grace and peace that was just spoken over them in the benediction. So the Spirit gives us that grace and peace from the throne of God, from our King. The message is from the Father and the Spirit, but who else is it from? From the Son, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Notice how John describes Jesus, who is the faithful witness. In this book, we are being called to be faithful witnesses, so we need to know who our example is. Who is the firstborn from the dead, or to hear it like they may have heard it the first time, who is the firstborn from among the corpses? This is important since we are being called to be faithful witnesses even to the point of death and to love not our life even unto death. He's the firstborn from the dead, implying that we too will be raised. The ruler of the kings of the earth. Oh, Since we are being called in this book to reject emperor worship and to turn to the one who died, we need to see beyond what appears out the train window, which is that emperors and military, the military rule. They rule. They decide what happens in this earth. They make all the decisions. We're just a bunch of pawns that have no effect. In the world. But now we need to see beyond that to the reality that can't be seen on the surface out the train window is that Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Amen? Amen. Each description is relevant to the call of this book. Now, Jesus is listed third, which is interesting. We're used to hearing Father, Son, and Spirit, and that's typical. Why would John put Jesus third? Well, simply because he wants to end here in order to stop and direct our worship to Jesus. Describing Jesus Christ and who he is sends John and through him the listening audience into worship for what he has done. That leads to our final point, an exuberant worship. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. And the response is, Amen! See, this is a call and response right here in Scripture. Look, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of Him. And literally it then reads, Yes! Amen! 
I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Our worship is a response to our redemption. He loves us and freed us from our sins by His blood. By His blood. In other words, He did it at the ultimate cost to Himself. What, what kind of ruler is this? The, the rulers of this world build their kingdoms on the blood of their people. That's true today. It's never changed. But Christ builds His kingdom on His own blood. He lays down His life for us. The redemption had a, resp- uh, had a purpose. To be a kingdom priest to His God and Father. To... To Him be the glory and the power into the age of ages. Amen. In other words, John is just being captured. He's being caught up in worship as he contemplates Christ our King and how He rules over us in love at a great cost to Himself. This worship then calls the participant to do something. Look! Behold, some translations say, look. You see, the apostles had seen Jesus disappear in the clouds at His ascension. He was caught up before them, we read in Acts chapter 1. And then He just disappears in the clouds and He was no longer seen. We've all watched a plane as it ascends into the clouds. It disappears, but that doesn't mean it ceases to exist, does it? It doesn't stop moving forward. It continues on its journey, its mission, if you will. You can't see it because it's in the clouds. The airplanes continue to come or go in the clouds. Look! He is coming with the clouds, or He comes with the clouds. It's present, middle indicative. Could easily be understood and read as, Look! He proceeds with the clouds. He didn't stop working. When we stopped seeing Him that day of the ascension, He's just doing it hidden in the clouds, like airplanes. Hidden in the clouds. And that phrase echoes Daniel 7.13, which follows a listing of the beastly kingdoms of this world who were ferocious and had flesh hanging out their mouth and blood dripping off of it the kingdoms of this world. And in answer to those fierce beasts, Daniel sees God's answer. He says, The Ancient of Days was on His throne, and look, in the clouds of the sky, one like a Son of Man has come. In other words, here's what you see are these four beasts that are destroying humanity, representative of the four kingdoms culminating in the Roman Empire. But listen, what you don't see on the clouds, look, can't see it with your natural eyes, but look! In the clouds, there's one like a son of man. Now in one sense we say, woohoo, we got ferocious beasts, and our answer is uh, a young guy. But we know it's more than that. You see, this wasn't a future event, one on the clouds. It was an unseen reality. Daniel goes on to say, 
quote. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Just beginning to sound familiar with what we're reading in Revelation. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. In Revelation 1-7, John is describing a present reality in the heavens, the sky, if you will, the clouds, invisible to us. And then he jumps to the future. He goes from present to future tense. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All peoples, all tribes on earth will mourn because of him. Now that comes from Zechariah 12.10. And here's what's interesting. Zechariah describes the future restoration of Jerusalem, the people of God being restored, saying that they will look on the one they have pierced and mourn for him. But John captures that to describe the ultimate response of the Gentile nations to Christ. And as we'll see later, John understands the coming of the Gentiles into the kingdom as the restoration of the Israel of God. This is the mission. The world who pierced him will be forgiven and will mourn because of him, which means they will ultimately worship him. Worship will become worldwide. Worship in spirit and in truth. And to this vision, there is but one response, which literally reads, Yes! Amen! This is an exuberant response in worship. It was clearly, John was not seeing, I'm just saying, he was not seeing a typical white Reformed church. Because if he was, they never would have shouted, Yes! Amen! (laughs) Typical. I'm not saying you're typical, I'm just saying. So let's try to recreate this for a moment. I'm going to read the Declaration of John, a little paraphrased into my own wording. And let's all respond with the response that is given, which is, yes, amen. So, here's the call. Look, he's carrying out his mission in the clouds, and all eyes will see him. Even the tribes of the earth will mourn for him. That's what's going on here. That's our response to Christ and who He is. And it closes with a reminder in verse 8 of who is speaking. The one who is, I am. Who always has been active, who was, and will always be active. The Almighty. Give me a half a minute and I'll close here. Look, in the midst of all that is going on in the world today, to our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, look, to all of you concerned about what is happening in the schools or the government or the culture, look, Jesus is and has been and always will be active in the world. He continues to do His work hidden in the clouds. And such an awareness is to lead us to worship. Our series title, Worship and Witness in a Winner-Takes-All World. Listen, Revelation calls us to pure worship and faithful witness. The one who hears what the Spirit says to the churches will overcome. 
they will receive the victor's crown even though they die. And in the end, the winners of this world, with all the power, lose. This challenge to listen and overcome, it's not mere lip service. The church to whom it was written was mostly on the verge of losing the faith. It was an unhealthy church that was tempted to bow to everything the world calls power, as it is in our own day. We need this message. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, in a dark and broken world, You have given us a picture of reality. What's really going on and where it's really all going. And that reality causes us to take courage, to take heart. To walk by faith. And it calls us to worship. We can only worship that exuberantly because you've given us a vision of what reality is. As we explore that reality, Lord, may our worship become ever more exuberant. In Jesus' name, amen.